copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 7 here in just a few minutes. Uh, we are continuing to talk about the importance of healthy church membership, and today, right now, we'll be looking at how we are to be at peace with one another. A few weeks back, we saw that because of our mutual union to Christ, by grace alone through faith alone, we are also members of one another. And that's sort of the foundational one another. That was the foundational sermon to get us into talking about the one another's, uh, meaning our ministry to one another. And then I mentioned that there are 59 one another passages in the New Testament, and that each of us are to conduct ourselves according to those 59 one another's. That's how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. And as I stated, those 59 one another's can be broken down into four basic categories. At least this is how I've broken them down. The first category, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, is to love one another. That covers about one-third of all of the one another passages in this general category of loving one another. And we spent three weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talking about what it looks like to love one another. The second category is to serve one another. And that's where we were last week looking at John 13. And of course that serving one another is closely connected to loving one another. And then today we're going to talk about being at peace with one another. From this passage here in Romans 15. In this category, I put all of the one another's that deal with unity, with being reconciled, with being harmonious, and and of course being at peace with one another. They all fit under this one category, and that really covers another third of all of the one another passages. Then finally next week, our last category will be teach one another. And I'm going to look at Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. And when I see in the scripture where it talks about edifying one another, that's also involved with teaching. And so we're going to next week talk about teaching or edifying one another from Colossians chapter 3. But for today, we're focusing on being at peace with one another. And there's a lot of keys to peacemaking that can be found in today's text. So I want you to stand, please, right now as we read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. We stand at Harbin's uh, as we get ready to, to preach. We stand in the honor of reading the infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient Word of God. Romans 15, beginning in verse 1, says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, we can have great endurance as a result of being immersed in it. We do have great encouragement that's given to us through it. All equipping us to put our hope in Christ. And so this morning, as we think about being peacemakers... Father, my great desire is that no one in here will leave putting their hope in themselves to be the peacemaker, but instead they'll look to Christ, the Prince of Peace, 
as the only means by which we can be true peacemakers in the church. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you give us ears to hear your word and grant me a mouth to speak it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. An illustration I once heard about peacemaking that has always stuck in my mind. I heard from a missionary. He was a missionary who had lived in Japan. And this missionary spoke of this pottery shop that he went to. And they were showing him how they made these beautiful pieces of pottery. And these, these pieces of pottery were like mosaics. They had a bunch of different types of pottery all sort of molded together. And, and as this missionary went into the back room, he saw what they were doing. First of all, the, the, there were pieces, broken pieces of, of pottery in all these different piles. And there were people back there who were taking little pieces and they were, they were gluing them together. Now, they were gluing them together with this technique that you may be familiar with. I'm going to try to pronounce it. It's called, I think it's called kintsugugi, all right, or kintsukori, which is, a, which is a, a method of gluing pottery together where you use gold mixed with glue to weld pottery together. And what it does is, on like a single piece of pottery, it just adds these beautiful golden lines where there once were cracks or where it was once broken. And so basically the idea being is you turn this, this broken, worthless vessel into something beautiful with this golden um, this glue to hold it together. Well, in this case, it wasn't just a single piece of pottery, but this, this method of doing these mosaic potteries was taking all sorts of different broken pieces and using this gold to weld them together. And so I went looking last night to see if I could find any pictures of this, and I did. So here, here's an example of it. And there's these little pieces, and you'll see the, you'll see the golden glue right there in between the pieces that's, that's holding them all together. And then here's a picture of more of those pieces. And eventually you get all of these these pieces, and you start formulating them together into something beautiful. Now, I didn't find the result of those, but I found a different picture with that, with that same technique of using this golden glue to sort of glue these mosaic pieces together. And, and here's another example of it right there. But the point being that the key to this technique is that golden glue substance to, to put these broken pieces together. And the way this missionary explained it and how he brought it into the, the concept of peacemaking, he was talking about how the fact of the matter is that God has put in the church a bunch of broken people. All of us in here are a bunch of broken people with a lot of sharp edges. And we can cut each other quite easily. And we can cause harm to each other quite easily because of the brokenness that we're all bringing into the equation. But a peacemaker is someone who seeks to bring those broken pieces together into harmony. He, he knows that it's his job to help the church exist in unity for the glory of God. And so he kind of becomes that golden balm, if you will, or that golden uh, glue, if you will, that helps the church hold together. And we're all called to that. And it is an absolutely beautiful and stunning thing when we see a church that's unified. So those pictures there at the end, I couldn't find them. It wasn't as pretty as I wanted them to be, but those pictures there at the end of the complete piece represents the church, the beauty of a church that understands the importance of unity and the importance of peacemaking. We are all called to be peacemakers. Now, some are going to be more gifted in the arena of being peacemakers, being mediators, but we are all called to be peacemakers. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18 that we read just a minute ago. 
if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so I see here in Romans 15, verses 1 through 7, some keys to being people who are at peace with one another, being people who are peacemakers. Now today's sermon points, if you look at your notes there, today's sermon points just make up one long sentence, which I've broken down into pieces to help us walk through the text. And so the first thing I simply want us to see this morning is that a peacemaker reorients his preferences. Verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now before I really get into talking about this reorienting of our preferences, I want to give a little context here. The context is very, very important to any passage of Scripture, but it's very important especially today. Now remember, the chapter divisions and the verse numbers in your, in your Bibles are not inspired. Those were added later for ease of study and ease to find certain Scriptures. But, but they are not inspired. So we need to understand that what we have here in chapter 15 is a continuation of and an expansion of what Paul's already talking about in chapter 14. So to help us see some of those connections, look back at chapter 14, verse 1. So put your Bible in reverse. Maybe it's right there where you can see it or flip a page back. Verse 1 of chapter 14, and you'll read there that it says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So you see Paul there, just as he did at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 15, he's talking about some who are weak in the faith. And notice what his command is in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says that the weaker brothers, what are we to do with them? We are to welcome him. You are to welcome him. And if you look at today's passage in verse 7 of chapter 15, you'll see that same command only expanded a bit from weaker brothers to include all believers. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. So that exhortation to welcome, which means to accept or to receive, that exhortation to welcome, that forms the rhetorical bookends for this whole section. So thematically and structurally, verse 1 of chapter 14 all the way to verse 7 of chapter 15 are one unit. So we need to understand what Paul is talking about in chapter 14 and see how it flows directly into today's passage, but also to see how today's passage expands Paul's thinking even beyond what he said in chapter 14. So real quickly, if you don't know already, chapter 14 is designed to help Christians learn how to treat one another when we differ in opinion on non-essential issues. Again, look at um, chapter 14, verse 1, and you'll see that we are commanded not to quarrel, fight, not to quarrel over opinions. Opinions about uh, things like certain foods one's allowed to eat, certain days that one might consider more holy than other days, and stuff like that. Paul implores us that on these non-essential issues, we have freedom, and therefore we cannot bind the consciences of one another. He challenges those who feel more spiritual, who feel more spiritual by observing these non-essential things, those whom he calls weaker brothers, he, he, he challenges them not to pass judgment on their brothers. And then he challenges those who feel more freedom regarding these non-essential issues, those he calls stronger brothers, he challenges them not to despise their brothers. Instead, both groups, 
are to do what verse 19 of chapter 14 says. Pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. And that's the charge for all of us, to pursue peace, to build one another up. Now, how do we do that? Well, it means that we're willing to set aside our opinions for the sake of peace, for the sake of building others up. But Paul goes beyond that to put the onus on the stronger brothers in this passage of Scripture, the ones who feel they have more freedom. He puts the onus on them to be willing to forego his or her liberty in order to make peace, to build up, and to not destroy or hurt the weaker brother. So look with me. Let me read a couple of the verses here from chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Let me just pause right there. The reason peace is so important is because Christ died for your brothers and sisters just as he died for you. So you are to to recognize this, but to drive you towards peace. Verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, it's not my intention today to get into the specifics of the different areas of freedom that Paul's speaking out here. What I want us to see is just what what Paul's driving at here. Peace in the church, willingness to set aside one's opinions and preferences, and that drives right into verse 1 of the passage we're looking at today. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now listen, Paul is not just telling the stronger brothers to simply put up with the failings of the weak. When you read the word bear here, bear the, with the failings of the weak, don't think endure. Uh, don't, don't think just, just put up with. When you read the word bear here, it means to carry or to support. In other words, this type of peacemaking here is a proactive effort to help our brothers and our sisters amidst their weaknesses and their shortcomings. Bear is the same word used in Galatians 6, verse 2, where we're taught to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are to carry one another's burdens, not just put up with them. And if you know the context of Galatians chapter 6, you'll know that verse 1 there, that, that, that charge for us to, to carry one another's burdens comes after verse 1, which you know deals with, with Christians who are going through weaknesses and sinful failings. So peacemakers, peacemakers are those who set aside their rights, set aside their privileges, even their freedoms for the sake of building up others. There was no one, no one who had a greater grasp on the gospel than did the Apostle Paul himself. And so there was no one more free than the Apostle Paul himself. But look at his example. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 Verses 19 and following, this is the Apostle Paul. For though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now let me get on my little hobby horse here. Y'all have heard me talk about that passage of Scripture before. It's one of the most misquoted, misused, torn out of context passages of Scripture. In, it's used in the church today because people will go to that last verse and say, I've become all things to all people, so that by all means I might win some to justify a licentious way of living for the sake of the gospel. Well, I'm just going to live the way the world lives so that I can win people for Christ. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. He's actually talking about limiting his freedoms so that he can win more people to Christ. So what you're hearing there in those words from Paul is a peacemaker's heart. A peacemaker's heart. The secondary issues that divide, he was willing to set aside for the sake of the primary truth that unites. Namely, the unadulterated, unadjusted gospel of Jesus Christ. But gospel peace is destroyed when we put our needs, our wants, our desires first. Let me say that again. Gospel peace is destroyed when we put our needs, our wants, our desires first. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. If you know the book of the, the little epistle written by James, you know that it mirrors the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways. So when he says murder there, I don't think he's referring to people actually taking knives and stabbing each other in the church. Although I have heard of some Baptist churches that it's gotten to that point. I think he's talking about the way we treat our brothers. We hate one another. We're angry at one another. And what does Jesus say? That's murder. It's murder in the heart. And so as your notes say, a peacemaker puts others first by reorienting his preferences. Now I chose that word reorient for a reason. Because this isn't about begrudgingly putting a lid on your desires. It's about shifting them. Let me say that again. This is not about begrudgingly just putting a lid on what you want. It's about shifting your desires from oneself to the other person. Look again at verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now here comes the reorienting in verse 2. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we shift from pleasing ourselves to pleasing our neighbor. Now notice something else real quickly about verse 2 here. Those whom Paul is speaking to here has now expanded to include everyone. In verse 1, it says, we who are strong. But then in verse 2, he says, let each of us. He's now expanding it to talk, to the, talk about the attitudes that each of us should have, regardless of whether or not you are fitted to the camp of the strong or the weak within the body. 
So we are all to pursue peace by having a genuine desire to please others more than ourselves. Now, before I go any further about pleasing others, let me state two things. One thing I hope should be very obvious to you, and the other perhaps not so obvious. So first, the obvious. This type of pleasing others is not the sinful man-pleasing that's clearly condemned in other passages of Scripture. Galatians 1, verse 10. For am I seeking now the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Or 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. So we speak not to please man, but to please God. The type of pleasing others that is condemned in those verses I just read to you is a pleasing others that comes at the expense of the gospel itself. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What we're talking about here is the reorienting of our preferences on secondary issues for the sake of building up the body of Christ. So what we're talking about here matches up with what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Listen to this, verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So if your desire to please man, to please others, is for them to grow in the gospel, that's a good man pleasing. But if your desire to please others is to get out from underneath the gospel, that's a bad man pleasing. Okay? So hopefully that's obvious to you guys. The second thing I want to point out, which may not be so obvious to you, is that when Paul is telling us in this text today not to please ourselves, he is not saying that our service to one another should be joyless and non-pleasurable. In other words, we should get godly pleasure out of serving one another. Remember last week I called for our mission to serve one another? I said it should be a happy mission, a happy mission. Because Jesus said, it is more blessed, it's, it's happy, it's joyful, it's, it's gratifying, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So too here. It is a joyful, happy blessing to set aside one's preferences for the sake of others. So don't misread the call to not please ourselves as some sort of stoic call to, to begrudging, joyless self-denial. It's not what we're talking about here. Instead, as counterintuitive as it may sound to us, not pleasing ourselves by setting aside our preferences is actually a great pleasure. It's just a deeper pleasure that comes from letting go of lesser pleasures. Let me say that again. It's a deeper pleasure that comes from letting go of lesser pleasures. Matthew 5, 9. You know the verse, Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Happy, contented, joyful, gratified are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall see God. And why do we get joy out of setting aside our preferences? Well, we should get joy in seeing others grow in their faith. Look at verse 2 again. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So now let's move on to the next portion in your notes there. 
So I've got this sentence going on here. A peacemaker reorients his preferences. Why? Okay? In order to edify the people of God. A peacemaker reorients his preferences. Why? In order to edify the people of God. <clears throat> I've always been a sports fan. And the athletes I most admire when I, when, I, when I follow sports are those athletes who are not just very skilled at what they do, but they're athletes who make their teammates better. It's one of the reasons I loved watching Michael Jordan play, okay, is that Michael Jordan made everyone around him better. And if you needed any proof from that, was simply the two years he took off between the three championship rings and then the other three championship rings. Scottie Pippen and the rest of the gang just looked like normal, regular, run-of-the-mill players when Jordan wasn't there. But when he was there, they were world beaters. And that's the image here, is that, that a peacemaker is someone who makes those around him, the other believers, stronger. Are you that kind of person in the church that you, you build up others so that just being with you, talking to you, uh, fellowshipping with you, you, you edify them? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So again, he's referring to these freedoms we have. All things are lawful, he goes on to say, but not all things build up. And then he says this in verse 24, that same passage, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Later in that 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 12, Paul tells us to strive to excel in building up the church. Strive. Go for it. Strive to excel in building up the church. But this building up as, is not just some sort of ambiguous, generic thing. It's not merely encouraging someone. It's not just helping someone feel better about themselves. Building another person up means one thing scripturally. That they are helping the other person grow in their faith, grow in Christian maturity, grow in their Christ-likeness. That's what it means to build someone else up. You don't just pat them on the back and say, you're a great person. You want to see them grow. Matter of fact, telling them they're a great person may do the opposite. You want to see them grow in Christ, grow in their maturity. Ephesians 4, very well-known passage where we have the, the, the reason that God's given the apostles and he's given the, the prophets and the, the teachers and the evangelists, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is that? Continuing, it says, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the true knowledge of the Son of God. Listen to this. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means that the peace we are after here is much more than merely the absence of conflict. Let me say that again. The peace we are after in the church is much more than merely the absence of conflict. We can avoid each other and have the outward appearance of peace. All the while, no true peace exists. True peacemaking takes the initiative to actively, willfully set aside my preferences to see you grow. As I thought about this this week, I was trying to think of 
What, what would be an example of this we see from the church and the scriptures? And the Lord brought my mind to Acts chapter 6. It's the story of the first deacons. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Let me just walk through this and make a few comments. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, first of all, in the earliest of the early church here, we have issues. We have conflict. We have problems. So don't think that problems in the church, that, that happens. That's just reality. So already in the first church, we have issues here. Why? What was going on? Well, there were some who were being neglected. Well, so what did the apostles do? It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, <clears throat> It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. So let me remind you what the division is here. <clears throat> there are Hellenist believers, Hellenistic believers, that are upset with the Hebrew believers. Now, let me explain that real quick. Everybody in the church at this point right here are, are Jewish believers. But within the Jewish believers, there were two groups. There were the Jewish believers that grew up in Palestine, in that area there of the Promised Land, and they were the Hebrew Jews. And then there were other Jews who had grown up in the other parts of the Roman Empire who had come back, as you see on the day of Pentecost. And these were the Hellenistic Jews. And so there were cultural differences. The Hellenistic Jews certainly incorporated a lot of the Hellenistic culture. And the Hebrew Jews were, were probably more conservative about, about things including Jewish law and all of that. And so there may have even been some language differences. So you had these two groups in the church. And apparently the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. Now, how do churches in our day solve issues like that? When there's two different, culturally different groups and everything else. Well, instead of teaching each other to please one another by setting aside our preferences, well, we try to please everyone. So we have a contemporary service at 9.30, followed by a traditional service at 11 o'clock. Notice that the apostles didn't say, okay, all right, let's have a Hellenistic service at 9, and then we'll have a Hebrew service at 10.30. No, what did they do? Well, it may be hard to notice it on the surface here, but let's look at what they did. It says, verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, you may not know this, but every single one of those names are Hellenistic names. You see what the church did? Especially the Hebrew believers. Do you see what they did? They got together and said, let's solve this problem. And the way they solved the problem was to set aside their rights and their preferences and for the sake of peace, they, they elected all Hellenistic deacons. Let, let's solve this problem. Let's build each other up. We're going to get all Hellenistic deacons in here because we know they'll help care for these Hellenistic widows. It wasn't like, hey, we got to have, we got to have three Hellenistic deacons and we got to have three Hebrew deacons and then 
we'll find someone in the middle who can just sort of be the deciding vote. They set aside, I think it's implied here, they set aside their preferences for the sake of the health of the whole body. And how did God bless that? Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now when you look at the book of Acts, you know that the surrounding culture was utterly astounded by what God was doing in the church. Those outside the church were looking at the church and they were stunned by what God was doing in the church. And I think this is one of the reasons. Because this Hellenistic Hebrew divide, it existed in Jerusalem amongst those who were not believers. These types of people don't get along. Hellenistic people don't get along with Hebrew people. It doesn't work. And the onlooking culture looked at the church and said, oh my goodness, something different is happening there than out here. Of course, the great enemy of our willingness to set aside our preferences and reorient our pleasures, the great enemy of peace is pride. Pride pleases self. Pride exhibits an inward focus, a self-preoccupation. Now, this can manifest itself in two ways. And each one of us in here, myself included, fall along the spectrum somewhere between these two manifestations of pride. First, there is the self-exalting person. This is what most of us think about when we think about a prideful person. This person likes himself a lot and thinks others should as well. This person um, uh, masks his pride by calling it self-esteem. But this person makes an active effort to display his qualities, to tell his stories, to gain the applause and the approvals of men that he feels he so rightly deserves. The self-exalting person. But the second type of pride is the exact opposite of that. It's a self-effacing person. This is much more subtle. This person may look humble, but he is consumed with thoughts about himself. He may not even like himself very much, but he still thinks about himself, and he thinks about what others think about him. And therefore, he cannot think of others as he should. So both. Both the self-exalting person and the self-effacing person are self-preoccupied and both will be unable to build other people up. So what's the solution? I'm glad you asked and that'll take us to our next point here. A peacemaker reorients his preferences. Why? In order to edify the people of God. Okay. How? Well, by looking to the example of the Son of God. We edify the people of God by fixing our eyes, by looking to the example we have in Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 3, 4. 4. So, so we are building each other up. Why? Because 4. For Christ did not please himself. Friends, if we are called children of God, then we must see and savor the example of our elder brother Jesus and fix our eyes on him. Jesus is the supreme example as we discussed last week, of sacrificial love and humble service. Thus, in him we find the supreme example of setting aside one's rights and preferences in order to please others. Jesus wasn't interested in doing whatever he wanted to do that was on his list. In his human nature, he desired for his will to be perfectly aligned with his Father's will. John 5 Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. 
In, in doing the Lord's will, his will, his desire was not to please himself, but instead to die for others. To please others in the way that he died for others. John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So in Jesus' mind, those two things, the Father's will and then not living for his own desires, but putting his desires aside in order to please others, were one and the same thing. John 6, verse 38 through 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that Jesus had sinful desires that need to be set aside. What I'm simply saying is that in his human nature, he was tempted just like we are to do his own thing. But he would not even entertain the thought of doing anything unless it was completely aligned with his father, and therefore he laid himself down. He gave up his preferences for us. We know that from Philippians 2. And the father's will was that we would be the ones saved as a result of his self-sacrifice. But again, this denial of self, this refusal to please himself, was a happy denial of Jesus's. Hebrews 12, 2. It says this, tells us to look or to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so our Lord is our supreme example of self-sacrificing, peacemaking, a peacemaking that finds a higher pleasure in doing the will of God than doing anything that we might be tempted to do on our own for ourselves. John 13, 34, just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. But just as I pointed out last week, Jesus is much more than merely an example for us to follow. Verse 3 continues. He says this, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now this is a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And it's referring to Christ's earthly work to save us. This psalm is speaking in the first person to God. And so from the New Testament light that we have here that's shed back onto that psalm, we see this is Jesus speaking to his Father. He says, the reproaches, the disgraces, the, the insults, the reviling of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. Jesus was willing to receive the shame and the disgrace all for the glory of his Father. <coughs> He knew that being conformed to his Father's will meant that he would be mistreated by men. And he did that for us. Don't you see in Psalm 69, you and I are the ones hurling the insults. We're the ones who have reviled God. You and I are the reproachers. We are the insulters. We are those born in rebellion cursing at our God. And that scorn, those insults, those abuses, those blasphemies fell upon Jesus and as they did, Jesus took the punishment that those insults deserved in order to save us, in order to transform us into new creatures, united to him by faith and now empowered by the Holy Spirit. So now, only through our faith union with Christ can we be people like Christ. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 19 of that chapter Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. How do we do that? We can only do that through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That peace, that peacemaking desire comes from the Holy Spirit who lives in us, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace 
and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, and what's the third one? Peace. Oh, friends, it is only through the Spirit given to us by the work and the Word of Christ that we can be peacemakers. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of what? The Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. If we have been folded into the love of the Godhead when we were united to Christ, so too we have been folded into the peace within the Godhead once we've been united to Christ. And so now that we, ha- we now have access to a supernatural unity, a supernatural harmony, a supernatural peace. And the means by which we stoke, we stoke that, that desire to, to serve one another and stoke that desire to see and savor the works of Christ is the Bible. And so my next point is simply this. Okay, in order to edify the people of God, we do that by looking to the example of the Son of God and by being empowered through the Word of God. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, let me just say, I'm completely baffled as to why most commentators treat verse 4 like it's some sort of aside, like it's some sort of parenthetical note. Almost every commentary I read, okay, it says that this quoting of Psalm 69.9 sort of inspires Paul to deviate from his main thought in order to say a word about the Scriptures, only to then return to his thoughts in verse 5. I think that's absolutely ludicrous. I think it's ridiculous, and here's why. Look at the two things the Scriptures give us in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that, so that, here we go, so that through endurance, there's number one, and through the encouragement, there's number two, of the scriptures, we might have hope. And there's the aim, hope. Now, look with me real quick at verse five to see what it is that we appeal to in the character of God in order to live peaceably with one another. Look at verse five. May the God of, it's the same words again, endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such a manner with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So this word of God, the scriptures, which are a reflection of the character of God, are what we need in order to be peacemakers. How so? First, they point us to Christ, the Prince of Peace, who has secured our peace with God. But also they, the scriptures, produce something in us. What do they produce? They produce faith. Look at it again here, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have, and here it is, hope. And I take that to be virtually synonymous with faith. Hope. Faith produces hope, and hope is the disposition. Listen to this. Hope is the disposition that locates one's peace, one's contentment, one's confidence outside of oneself. We see the close connection between faith and hope in 1 Peter 1, 21, which speaks of, of we who through him are believers in Christ, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Colossians 1, 23 speaks of us not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So, so here's how I see all this fitting together. 
I'm hoping you're tracking with me here. Here's how I see this fitting together. Okay, we are called to be peacemakers who put others' needs and preferences above our own. We are to look to Christ, who is the ultimate peacemaker, who went to the cross so that we, through him, could be peacemakers. And to stir up peacemaking, we have the word of God, which points us to Christ, but it also produces hope and faith in Christ. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so how does faith-fueled hope enable us to be peacemakers? Well, by their very nature, they cause us to turn away from self and toward Christ for our contentment and for our joy. And if our contentment and our joy are in Christ, guess what? We no longer live to please ourselves. Let me say that again. That's what faith does in your heart. If our contentment and our joy are not in here, but are there in Christ, and the Word of God's always stirring that up, guess what? We let go of pleasing ourselves. Because we don't find any contentment there. My contentment isn't in how much this people like me. My contentment is in Christ alone. And so that's how it works. By their very nature, hope and faith Turn us to Christ. Faith and hope put self in a grave. Faith and hope speak the truth that if I have Christ, I have all I need. That's why we're saying all I have is Christ. And so silly and secondary preferences become, well, they become silly and secondary. And our grip on them releases and we become peacemakers. And Paul has great confidence that the word is going to do this in his readers. So now he enters into a benediction in verse 5. A prayer that sort of functions as a blessing upon his hearers. Verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul's hope is that the word of God, which reflects the character of God, might provide endurance and encouragement that we need in order to look to Christ in faith and thus enable us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We can only live in accord with Christ Jesus after the word has done its work in our hearts. So word-saturated people are peacemakers who produce harmony in accord with Christ. And harmony is a good word here. <clears throat> the phrase here, to live in harmony with one another, literally says to be of one mind. Okay, but, but it doesn't mean that we think exactly the same or that we all must agree on everything. Matter of fact, we know that's not the case because Paul spent all of chapter 14 insisting that we don't have to have uniform agreement on every little thing. Instead, he is talking about a gospel unity that overlooks differences for the sake of peace. It's the only way we can have diversity and unity that marks the body of Christ. So harmony here is a good word. As I was preparing the sermon last night, I had some, some bluegrass gospel hymns on in the background. I know that you may be looking at me thinking, I don't really see a bluegrass gospel guy there. But I do like bluegrass gospel hymns. And one of the reasons I like them because it takes me back to my childhood when I lived in South Central Kentucky. But secondly, the harmonies. I love the beautiful harmonies that work together in some of those songs. So I remember as a kid, these gospel groups would come up and, and just being awed by what they could do with their voices and how those, those different voices just blended together in beautiful harmony. Now, had they all had the same exact voice, it wouldn't have sounded good. They were diverse. 
but they were unified. So harmony is a very good word here. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 1 Peter 3, 8, which we read earlier. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So let me conclude our sermon by bringing us to our final point here. A peacemaker reorients his preferences. Why? In order to edify the people of God by looking to the example of the Son of God and being empowered through the Word of God. And finally, all to exalt the glory of God. So look now at the rest of this passage here, verses 5 through 7. Look at this benediction and then the closing exhortation that Paul gives. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, listen, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 7, therefore, in light of all of this, therefore, welcome Accept, receive, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now to see the beauty of all of this and what Paul's saying here, remember, I told you that to live in harmony with one another meant to be of one mind. So verse 5 speaks of us having one mind, and then verse 6 says that one mind produces one voice. That together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the main reason I chose the very first song that we sang this morning. Come, people of the risen king. There's a line in there that says, one heart, one voice. Our unity, therefore, is our voice. Our unity proclaims something to the world. Namely, it proclaims the glory of God. God is magnified. God is made much of when his church lives in harmony with one another. We proclaim to the onlooking world that Jesus is real. And that our union with him is real. And then we have love-fueled, servant-hearted peace with one another. It proclaims something about the power of Christ at work in us. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But perhaps no scripture displays this truth about our unity being our voice, being our testimony to the onlooking world than does Jesus' own high priestly prayer in John 17 beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, here it is, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity, our unity is the gospel song we sing to the world. And our unity is absolutely gorgeous. It's amazing. It should be to an onlooking world. It's a shame. It tells you about the state of the church in America when most people think about the church and they don't think about unity. They think about the opposite. 
like that Japanese pottery, our unity should be beautiful. When we reconcile with one another, when we welcome one another, it demonstrates that we truly have been reconciled to God and welcomed by God. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, Christian, here this morning, do you truly understand the glorious peacemaking work that has been done for you in Christ? Meditate upon it. By his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he bought you and he brought you into peace with God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And because you have peace with God, well, then you can have peace within your own heart. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so now, in light of our peace with God and our peace within, we now have supernatural ability through Christ and the empowering of the Spirit to have peace with one another. Ephesians 2, 4, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Friends, we have these little brochures. They're out in the front, and there's some right here. I purposely brought some in here today for when we close the service, and you bring your offerings, and you bring your prayer requests. This is called peacemaking principles. I want everybody in the church to read and think about the things that are in here. Harbin's will be a much stronger church if we put these things into practice. Here's an example. The four G's of peacemaking. Glorify God, get the log out of your own eye, gently restore, and go and be reconciled. If you just did those four things, wow, how strong this church will be. And more than that, though, God has given you a ministry of reconciliation. Yes, we are to be at peace within the church, but that bond of peace that we have in the church should be evidence that validates our message to the world. For in the end, we have, a, we have a ministry to call on men to be at peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So there be any unbelievers in here this morning. You were born an enemy of God. So you have heard what Christ did for sinners. So I implore you to turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ to forgive your sins and to bring you peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the very next verse in that passage said that, says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're wondering how important peace is to God, it's all summed up right there. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.